Hey, thanks so much for joining us on our channel today. We want to encourage you to subscribe and like today's video. Also, today's word is brought to you by our truth partners. These are people who want to financially invest to help us get this message of truth to around the nation and around the world. You can become a truth partner today by simply going to creativechurch.com slash give. Again, thank you for partnering with us on this message of truth. And thank you for liking and subscribing to today's video. God bless you. I pray this sermon blesses your life. Amen. Good morning. You look fantastic. Of course, I'm looking in a spotlight, so you all look like angels. It's just wonderful. But uh, you may be seated this morning. And uh, help me just welcome our Spring Lake Park campus this morning. You just put your hands together for them. I love you all. I miss you this morning. And uh, I also ask that you just help me for a moment to honor Pastor Jonathan, Pastor Joanne. How many just blessed by them? Amen. How many just thankful for a pastor that's continuing trying to lead you to Jesus? And uh, I told somebody the other day, I said, you have the benefit of seeing where Pastor Jonathan is today. But I was there when he was being prophesied over as a little boy. I still have videos and pictures of when men and women of God were calling him up front, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and prophesying that he would preach to the nations, prophesying that he would touch souls, that he would touch lives. And so what you're seeing today is not he just made a decision and it worked out. Amen. It wasn't like, hey, he just like, hey, let's give this a shot. This is a call of God that brought him hours from home, hours away from family. And he said, God, I'm just going to give you my yes. Years of suffering, years of going through processes. And uh, I, just, I just love him and his family so much. Uh, they truly are like family to me. Uh, I've always ad ad just admired him, loved him, got in trouble with him when we were little. Uh, minor trouble, minor infractions. Uh, primarily talking too much during Sunday school, to be totally honest with you. I know that shocks everyone in the room, uh, but I'm just so thankful and blessed to be here. And just so you know, my family and I, we moved 15 hours to be a part of Creative Church. That's how much we believe in what God's doing in your midst, in your presence. And so we just want you to know that. We value you. We are honored to be a part of this team, to be a part, honored to be a part of Creative Church. And I truly believe we are going to see God do some, like, last day outpourings here in this fellowship. Amen? I believe we're going to see a lot of souls saved, a lot of people touched by the presence of God. But my assignment today is to really dig into the subject of prayer. And so I will tell you this, just to know a brief bit of my background, I was... And I tell people that, you know, I was brought up in... in in Pentecost. Now, if you're new to the church experience, you're like, I don't know what that means. Let's just say it this way. We did not have any clocks or watches. We did not pay attention to time whatsoever. I came from the, the time where we had Sunday school, and then you had Sunday morning worship, and then you had a brief break to like refuel and hydrate, <laughs> to come back that evening and do it all over again and I'm serious when I tell you there was many times that services went until 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I would literally just fall out as a child and wake up in my bed. It was like a miracle um, to where my dad stopped doing that around 7 or 8. All right, so he, I, I kind of figured out what was happening. But they were just hungry for the presence of God. And for any of you who say, that sounds awful. 
I can promise you it wasn't. Because those services, even though sometimes they were five or six hours, they filled like 15 or 20 minutes. Because when the anointing of God is falling, when the presence of God is sweet, everything else around you stops. And I can tell you countless experiences in God that seem like they went by like that because of his presence. But I had a praying mom and a praying grandmother. And I stand before you today not because I'm a great man. I stand before you and have been honored to serve the Lord for most of my life and been in ministry for the length of the time I had because I had a mom and a grandmother that would not give up on me. They would not stop praying for me when I wasn't praying for myself. That was believing for me when I did not believe in myself. Then was giving me God when I didn't want him. And I watched both of those sweet ladies leave this earth and step right into the presence of the Lord. Right behind each other. I got to watch my mom leave into eternity. And then a short time after that, got a phone call. My grandmother slipped into eternity. And both of them never lost their faith. They were totally secure in who God was. Why? Because they walked with him. They walked with him. And so here is what I found when it comes to the subject of prayer. People tend to treat prayer one of two ways. The first one is this. Free stuff. As soon as we get developed a little bit in our walk with the Lord and we start realizing that he does bless, that he does move on our behalf, that he's able to do amazing signs and wonders, our human nature kicks in and we have a habit of focusing a lot of our spirituality on what can God give me. Am I right about it? Some of your lowest moments in your walk with God, if you've been walking any length of time, is when God has not, or in your opinion, has not answered your prayers. How many would agree with that? Anyone ever been frustrated with God? Some of you are not telling me the truth. All right, there we go. I'm like, I got a bunch of new converts this morning. All right, so. But here is what God had to teach me and to mature me in and to realize that no is an answer. Hey, I just want to take a moment and let you know that today's sermon is brought to you by our Truth Partners. If you're interested in being a Truth Partner, simply go to creativechurch.com slash give and select Truth Partners today. Again, please subscribe and like today's video. It's blessing you. It's blessing your family. And hey, let's get back to the word. And if I got any good parents in the room, I think you would agree that you give far more no's than you do yeses. Amen? Especially when they're little. No, you may not eat a box of crayons. No, you may not take a fork and stick it in the wall outlet. No, you may not do that. No, you may not climb that tree. All right? No, you may not play in traffic. No, you may, you know what I mean? It's like, it's exhausting. And yet we get aggravated with God when God says, no, I will not give you that. No, I will not open that door for you. No, I will not give you that financial blessing. No, I will not heal you. No, I am not going to change this. And you say, wait a minute. God always, the people who believe the always stuff, don't read their Bibles. Because the reality of it is that God's no is always attached to developing your character. Do you hear what I'm telling? Your character is revealed on the other side of God's no. Because if you throw a tantrum, you're showing your maturity level. 
I seen a whole video one time on social media of people that were sharing things that their toddlers were throwing fits about. And it was stuff like, won't let him eat trash. And he's freaking out, crying, and you know what I mean? And the next one's like, I wouldn't let him kiss the dog on the mouth. And it was just everything, every one was like the most awful things that a toddler would do, right? Like that's what toddlers do. And they're crying and they're angry. And that's a lot of what we see in today's church is that people on the other side of their no have a tendency of getting upset with God, not realizing that his love is as much represented in his no as it is in his yeses. That his character building in your life many times and trying to mature you is on the other side of him saying no and stepping back and watching how you respond. You hear what I'm telling you? Because I got four children and they're almost all adults. And so what I have watched is there was times in their life that I said no to them. And eventually I ended up saying yes when their maturity level changed. My 14-year-old, can I drive? No. Because I want to live. All right? No. Turns 15, can I drive now? No. But all of you parents know if you've got kids that are a little bit older, when they start getting around 17, 18, you're so tired of driving them everywhere. You're like, listen, here's the keys. What, you know what I mean? We'll worry about the license later. I never did that. I'm just joking. All right, I'm just joking. I did not do that. But you're just to the point where you're like, yes, I want to see you do this. Because now you're mature. I want to get you to the place that you can navigate the difficulties of life. The other way that people deal with prayer is this. They deal with it. The way that I used to deal was something that my mom had me do every day. She would have this little tablet of chalk consistency that tasted a little bit like fruit and a little bit like blood. Called a multivitamin. Now, some of you might have had it rolled up with money and it had like the good Flintstone ones. That you could eat an entire bottle of, by the way, and feel nothing. All right, so... Mom weren't like that. Mom was like a chewable horse pill, all right? And it was like, and it tasted like iron and a little bit of like grape. You know what I'm saying? And I hated them. And I would try to like tuck them under a napkin or a hot, you know what I mean? And my mom would always check. And she'd go, no, you're going to take this. Good for you. That's when I started learning that some things that taste bad are good. And some of us treat prayer just like that. Like, I got to do it. We treat it like it's a chore. We treat it like it's obligation. And we treat it that way because we've not had a revelation of the reason God created prayer in the first place. We've not had a revelation of what prayer really is. That it's not a religious duty. It's not a religious obligation. It's much more powerful than that. So here is what I'm going to do. All right? And I only have two and a half hours to do it. But it... But in a very short amount of time, I'm going to go through history really fast for you to really get and understand. I'm going to cover a lot of things. i got a lot of scripture, all right? So just stay with me, okay? Just stay with me. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to go quick because i got to. Beginning in verse 5, it says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So here is what we see that is written in red in my Bible, which means it is Jesus speaking. And Jesus is laying out to the current disciples and all of us to come what prayer is to look like. But the most, pr- the, the, the most uh, important word in that entire paragraph is when. Here is why. Because he was laying this out as something that must be done. He did not say if you pray. He said, when you pray, he is saying that with a full assumption that after you are saved and set free from everything in your life, that communicating with him is something you're going to want to do. Because Jesus knows something that we don't really realize yet is that communication with the father is the only way to have victory in this life. I'm telling you, I've been around a minute and every believer I've ever found that struggles with their walk is struggling with their prayer life. So he looks at him and says, when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites. And here he was identifying as the hypocrites. He was talking about the Pharisees or the religious leaders, and here is why. They loved to go into the temple, and they would go in front of everybody else, and they would shout their prayers at the top of their lungs. Now, some people go, that means we can't shout. No, that's not what it means. It means this. You can shout to the Lord. You cannot shout to the person to the left or right of you so they think you're holy. Bible says God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Why is that crucial? Because this is what the religious leaders were doing, and Jesus wasn't having it. And so he's telling them, do not do it. Also, don't do it like the Gentiles. The Gentiles were pagan, meaning many times they would make oaths or they would chant things over and over and over and over again, like sometimes single word phrases just to try to get the attention of deities that were not listening to them in the first place. And so they would work themselves up into a frenzy trying to get the attention. He said, don't do that. It does not mean you cannot petition the Lord and pray things like, God, please heal me. Please heal me. Please heal me. God, please heal my little girl. Please heal my little girl. That's not what he's talking about. He is saying they are saying this and they're repeating phrases to try to move a God that does not care. Because it's a rock. Amen? So Exodus 25, 8 through 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in the midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Now, I jumped all the way back into history, and here's what we find. The children of Israel are getting ready to go through the wilderness. And God is telling them, this is what I want my tabernacle to be. But you need this morning to not put your eyes on the fact that the tabernacle was a building. You need to understand that the tabernacle was a door. And what do I mean by that? The tabernacle was a place of access to God for the people. So it literally is where the presence of God rested. And God was so detailed that every fabric, every metal, Every way that it was tied, every post, every rope, everything about it, God was very, very specific about. 
And he said, every time you take this down, these certain people are to carry these posts. These certain people are to take care of the ropes. These, I mean, that's how specific God was. And he said, when we go to another encampment, you're to take it down or put it back together like this. This guy's to tie this rope. This, I mean, this is how specific God was. And he said, if you do that, then I will meet with you. You will have my presence everywhere you go. And so we, what we see is, is after this is done, there, during the day, there was this vortex of cloud that would come down and touch right over top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. At night, there would be a vortex of fire that would fall. What was that? It was a tangible sign that the Shekinah, which is the actual seeable glory of God, was with them everywhere they went. Now, here's why that was so powerful. One, because there was over a million of them, and the Bible says that they all could see it. Do you know how far out you have to be to be a million people and you're on the outskirts and you can still see this, this huge vortex of fire, what that would do for your confidence level? Not only that, it was a sign to anyone else that would ever interact with these people through the, through the wilderness not to mess with them. How I many know that's intimidating? This is way before CGI and anything else we have to offer. They knew if they're seeing something like that, these people have a God we don't have. So they put all this together. I'm going to fast forward really quick. Exodus 40, verse 38. And fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. Now, we're going to fast forward this. The presence of God's with, and we're going to move to Numbers. Chapter 3, 5 and 10. And what I'm about ready to read to you is the description of what the, the priests and the Levites were, were to be. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priests, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As a minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as a minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now, I told you before, I've been in church almost 44 years. I have yet to see a marketing piece yet that went like this. Well, you're welcome to our church, except the auditorium. We will kill you. All right? It's... It's just a different time. God is so specific that he literally takes the tribe of Levi and said, these will be the priests. They will represent you to me every time. They are the ones that are allowed to touch the tabernacle. They are the ones that are allowed inside. They are the ones that attend everything else. So of the tribe of Levi, they were all one of two things, priests or assistants in the temple. And so everywhere they went, this was their, their assignment. No one else was allowed anywhere near it. That is really going to matter here in just a couple minutes. God is very specific that the rest of you can see my glory, but you cannot touch it. You can see the presence, but you cannot touch it. Now we fast forward to the children of Israel have made it through the wilderness, and now they are standing outside the walls of Jericho, the promised land. Now if you have to understand, they have been in captivity for hundreds of years up to this point. They have traveled through the wilderness. They have griped and complained and died and suffered and got punished, but they also seen the presence of God through it all. Now here they stand, 
outside of their promised land. They stand outside of what God has said is theirs. And the people of Jericho, which is the first city in the area of Canaan, they look up over their massive wall and they begin to taunt the Israelites. Now, here's what's incredible about this moment. The children of Israel are camped outside the promised land. There is a wall that is so massive, it doesn't seem like any human being could possibly go through it. They have traveled all of this distance and all of this way, but they are encamped and they have stopped. Here is why. Because the children of Israel only moved where the presence of God moved them. So at night, sometimes the fire would go all night and it would stop in the morning. If that happened, they knew to tear down camp and begin to move. There were times they might be in the same place for several weeks. It was all dependent on the presence of God. And so he had led them to this place in this moment. And here is what is incredible about this, is that these Canaanites, these pagan people who had prayed to empty prayer rooms and cold places and damp places, who had never seen their God move, had never felt anything, had never seen any presence, now have a million-person army that is right outside of their walls with a plume of smoke that is going right over top of, their, of, of the, the Ark of the Covenant. Or at night, they're seeing this fiery glory that's coming down, and here is how they're encamped. Now, here's why this is so incredible. The cross itself literally would have been sideways. At the east, you would have had right here is the tribe of Judah, which literally means praise. It's the access point to the cross. Is at the foot of the cross, which is worship. Why is that so significant? Because they had never seen anything like They had never seen God move. They had never seen any part of this. But here's where this gets super incredible, is that this battle is about ready to take, take place happens on April 20th, 1400 BC. What does that mean? It means that the battle about ready to take place took place over a thousand years before the nation of Rome was even a nation. They haven't even invented crucifixion. They hadn't invented wooden crosses. They hadn't invented any of this stuff. But God already had a plan for his body, his church, to access their promised land. And it's always been on the other side of the cross. It's always been there at the foot of the cross. It was in their worship and in their praise. So now we're going to fast forward just a little bit more. And we're going to fast forward to 1 Samuel. Now Saul is king. All right? And they're fighting the Philistines. They're battling out. And the Philistines know the history of the Jewish people. And they said, we know how to beat them. We'll beat them by taking the presence of their God out of their camp. And so the Bible tells us they steal the Ark of the Covenant. They load it on a cart, and they run it out of the city, and then they slaughter the children of Israel. Now, here's what's so incredible about this moment, is that if you were to live through it in the time, you would feel like all hope is lost. We have lost God's presence. We've lost the battle. We've lost our freedom. We've lost everything around us. But you have to understand what was happening on the other side. And I share it this way for this reason. We get the experience of reading the whole story. They had to live it. So they're living in a place of God in desperation. We've lost everything. We've lost your presence. We've lost the ark. We've lost literally everything. But here's what God was doing on the other end. Is that when the ark got into the city of the Philistines, all of a sudden, all kinds of bad things began to happen. They started having pestilence and sickness and crazy things. To the point where the people of Philistines literally said, get this thing out of here. 
We don't care how much it's worth. We don't care what it, what it represents. Just get it out of here. It, we're going crazy. Why? Because the presence of God will drive people crazy who are not submitted to the glory of God. And so here's what they do. They load it back on a cart, and the Bible says they put it on a cart with two oxen, and they, they, just, they literally say, if it goes left towards the Israelite people, we know this was God, and he was the one that was really doing this. If it goes right, we know we were just wrong, but we're still really glad to get rid of that thing. So here's what happened. Historically, they load it on the cart, and they watch. And the oxen get to the fork in the road, and it goes left. And the hand of God literally leads his presence right back to his people. So now 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're fast forward again. King David is now king. And the Ark of the Covenant is on the outskirts of the boundaries of the city. And David is convicted and he said, it's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, back into the dwelling of the people. And so he sends for it. Meanwhile, he has this massive tent build to host the presence of God or the Ark of the Covenant. You following me? So he brings it back. So here's what happens. They bring it back, 2 Samuel chapter 6, 3 through 7. It says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart, which the ark of God and Ohio were before the, were for, went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside of the ark." Now, of all the scriptures that I've struggled with throughout my walk with God, this has got to be top five. Here's why I struggled with it. This man had really good intentions. Let's let that settle in for a moment. Because a lot of us have really good intentions in some of the things we do, but it's still not God. And so the Bible tells us, that Uzzah's being obedient to his king. They're ushering him back in the presence of God, and the oxen stumble. It stumbled. It, it almost fell. And Uzzah, I mean, I, I feel like I would have done the same thing. That's why I struggle with it. My like, God, you would have killed me. I don't like that. But the Bible says he jumps forward, and, he, and when he, his hand touches it, he dies. And I thought, God, you're so cruel. That's so cruel. He had good intentions. He didn't want it to hit the ground. I know you said don't touch it, but he wasn't really trying to touch it. He was just trying, justification. He's just trying to not let it hit. But here's what I found. It was much bigger than that. Because David pauses and he said, hold on, leave it right there. Because if you go on, the Bible says that David was angry with God, but he also feared God. Hear what I'm telling you. David was angry because he struck down Uzzah, but he also feared God. So he went back to Scripture, and here's what he found out. God didn't just strike Uzzah dead because he just touched the ark. He struck him dead because they were transporting the ark in the way that the pagans transported it and not the way that God told them. So when David goes to Scripture, here's what David found out because it had been lost in history, that God had instructed them, when you move or transport the ark, you put, you put 
uh, poles through the, the, through the slots on the side, and then you have the priest shoulder the presence of the Lord. You have the, 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 them bear underneath the weight of God's glory and God's presence. It's meant for the priests and the priests alone. They are to get underneath these, and as long as I tell them to, they're to walk with it. They're to go through the, 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 the wilderness and through the desert and through the dry places and shoulder the weight of my presence. He said, I didn't tell you to put it on a cart. I never gave you that instruction, and you you tried to host my presence in carnal ways. You tried to host my presence in pagan ways. And never has God allowed for men and women to try to host his presence in carnal ways. He said, I'm not going to allow it. That's why he was struck dead. So now we're going to fast forward again to 1 Kings and 8. And you're going to hear about this massive, massive temple. And the reason I'm not reading all this is because I really would be two and a half hours and you'd be very upset. But we have King Solomon's in place. And King Solomon builds one of the greatest temples the world has ever known. They believe historically, when they went back and looked at everything he put in it, if you were to build it today, it would have been in the, in the tens of billions of dollars that Solomon built to build this temple unto the Lord. But here's what you understand about Solomon's temple. Solomon built the temple to the exact specifications in the way that God had laid on his heart to build it. Every metal, every fiber, every entrance, everything about it was very specific. And Solomon built it and absolutely reverenced and honored God. But here's what happened. Around 586 B.C., so several hundred years after the first story that I shared with you, 586 B.C., once again, the children of Israel did what they always do. They got hard-headed, disobedient, irreverent, and God said, I'm not having it. And he allowed the Babylonian army to come in and overtake the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's why that's very specific. The Bible says that they went through and they raided everything. They stripped all the gold, all the, all the precious jewels, all the metals, anything of value they stripped from the temple. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant disappears from history. And most people don't even realize it. So in this moment, they believe one of two things happened. Scholars have studied this. They went through back historical documents. This is the, the only two theories they have. Number one is that Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of it and knew the history of it and said, I'm not keeping this thing and destroyed it. Or two, the Levite tribe ran in, grabbed a hold of it, and hid it, and we've not found it to this day. And that's one of the two. Now, here's why this is really significant. Because there's a prophecy. Because now we say, well, wait a minute. What about the presence of God? This is where God's presence is hosted. This is where he has gained access. This is where he's told him over and over again. And now it's gone. But we have seen history and religion and Christianity and all these things continue to grow and develop and people touch, touch God. Well, this is where it gets interesting. And this is where you need the revelation of prayer. Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17, he gives a prophecy. And he says, and when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall, not, it shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. So why is that significant? Here's why. As you fast forward just a little bit more to King Herod. Now, this is the same King Herod that tried to trick the wise man into telling him where Jesus was. This is the same King Herod who practiced Judaism but wanted nothing to do with this new king. So he built a temple for his own ego. 
He built a temple as a place of worship but followed no specifications. He did not use very much precious metals. He he had multiple entrances into the thing. A lot of the altars and things were made of stone. A lot of those was trying to reproduce the greatness without any intentionality or obedience to the voice of God. Why is that significant? Here's why it's super significant. Because we see Jesus in that temple as a little boy. And in that time, and a lot of us miss this moment, he is talking to the religious leaders. Do you remember the story? And his family leave him. They go, oh, my gosh, we lost Jesus, which always gives me hope as a parent. All right, so they're like, we lost Jesus. And so they go back, and Jesus, as a little boy, is talking to the religious leaders, and the Bible says they're astounded. Here's why. Jesus knew their dirty little secret. What's their dirty little secret? That the temple had built. They had the, the outer court, the inner court, the holies of holies. But the holies of holies of Herod's temple had no Ark of the Covenant in it. It was empty. Why is that significant? It was significant because they were still performing rituals and ceremonies without the presence. It was literally dry religion, dry worship, dry prayer. Guys, listen, for centuries they were doing this. And Jesus knew their dirty little secret. And so as a little boy, he's got, I got a question. I need to ask you something. And the religious leaders are scurrying and freaking out because they're like, this little boy knows something. He knows something about about all this. And he leaves. He leaves and goes. But then we see him a little bit later show up on the scene again. When? When he comes in as an adult, after he rides in on the backbone of a donkey as king, the first place he goes to is the temple. And he runs in and flips tables and removes everybody. And you need to understand what Jesus was doing. He was not having a fit. He did not lose control of his temper. He was fully aware of what he was doing because so much of the Bible and Jesus' ministry is mirroring what he will continue to do throughout history, and it is this. He marched into the temple, and he overthrew unrighteousness. He overthrew the things that did not belong in there. I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to pause. Here's why that's super significant. Because in modern day times, when he comes into a non-believer's life, that's exactly what he does. He comes into the new temple, which is your body, and flips tables. He gets rid of unrighteousness. He says, you're not going to live like this anymore. You're going to be known as a house of prayer. He didn't lose his temper. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was correcting things for future events that were coming in the life of the believer. Why? Because the New Testament believer is the the temple of God. It's not a building. It's you and it's me. The dwelling place is in our hearts and in our lives and in our homes and in our families. And Jesus said, I'm not going to let you be a den of thieves. I'm flipping tables and running the money changers out. I'm removing unrighteousness from the church that's what he was doing and then he shows up one more time but not in person but in spirit band you can help me land this I'd appreciate it go with me to Luke chapter 23 44 through 46 It says it was about now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Here's what's so significant about this moment. As Jesus had confronted the temple, the religious sect of the day, the religious way of doing things, over and over. But here is what he did in his death. I have heard this preached so many times that when Jesus did that, it released the Spirit of God upon the earth. Then I realized something. That's not what was happening at all because the Spirit of God was everywhere Jesus was. Jesus was already walking the earth and kept telling people, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through the Son. He's already opening their eyes and revealing to them all this stuff you're doing. I'm setting you free from. That's why the religious leaders hated him. But I'd heard it was re- releasing. Well, we as people never, by the way, have the power to release anything when it comes to God. Do you hear what I'm telling you? If we did, we'd be God and he wouldn't be. Here's what happened. The Bible says that the veil tore from top to bottom. Now that's super significant because the veil was enormous. It was extremely thick and extremely tall. And the Bible says it ripped from top to bottom. Why? Because only God would be able to do that. No man could take credit from it being ripped from top to bottom. And the Bible says when it was ripped open, it revealed something. That the presence of God was not there. And the Bible says that right after that, that even many of the priests, hear what I'm about ready to tell you, even many of the priests gave their hearts to God. These are men who had faithfully committed ceremonies every day of their life. But the second they experienced the true presence of God, all they could do is repent. Why is it so relevant? Because that is what prayer is meant to be in the life of a believer. It is not a religious obligation or duty. It is the tabernacle in the wilderness. It is the temple of Solomon. It is the moment where God's people interact with a true and living God. And they see his presence and his fire move in their church again. Why do we have dry churches? Because we got dry prayer lives. Why do we have churches that no longer burn? Because we have hearts that no longer burn. Why do we have churches that people are no longer weeping at the altar? Because our prayer rooms are quiet and cold. And we consider prayer just something to do religiously. But Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. It is interacting with the only true and living God. It is a meeting place that every one of you as living, breathing temples of the living God can experience His tangible glory and His presence. 
Because let me tell you something, when you get a true revelation of this, you're no longer worried about, did he answer my prayers, didn't you know why? Because you got to spend time with a king. Because you got to spend time with a king. Because you got to get his presence and his touch and his love and his mercy. And then you no longer even think. Why? Because when you're in his presence, he changes your heart. He changes your desires. He shifts, your, he shifts everything that you're looking to. You want to know why it's so significant that our pastor, all I've heard him talk about since January, this is it. It's the presence. The presence. He keeps saying, Andrew, I just got to get in the presence. We've got to get the church in the presence. We've got to get them in the presence. This is what we're seeing. This is what we're talking about. The presence is what made enemies run. The presence is what made enemies flee. The presence are the one that gave promised land to become their promised land. It is the presence of God that grants victory. It's the presence of God that draws the unbeliever. It's the presence of God. Will you stand with me today? It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. Yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus. God, we need your presence. Church, listen. Listen, listen, listen. Let this not just be some kind of religious moment where you just go out the door. Let this be a start of something new in your heart. That God, I've not always desired your presence. God, truthfully, I've not always pursued your presence. God, but I'm telling you today, you're convicting my heart. And I will hunger for your presence. I will desire your presence in my home, in my car, in my workplace, on my life, on my children. I will not trade my eternity for a temporary. I will not turn back. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet each other or meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to know what the body of Christ is supposed to look like now? That's it. Encouraging one another in the Lord. Rooting for one another in the Lord. Cheering one another on. Come on, press in, press in, press in, press in. Listen, every great revival of the world has started with that being the call of their hearts. God, we need more. We need you. We need you. We need you. God, we're not satisfied. God, we're not satisfied. God, we need you. We need your presence. You need your church. You want to set a drug addict free? It's Jesus. You want to set a prostitute free? It's Jesus. You want to see marriages healed? It's Jesus. It's the presence of a true and living God. I want to open these altars up right now to each and every person who's just feeling a compulsion that I got to pray that no longer needs an altar call. But here's the call of the altar. That here's the call of the altar. There's a man and woman said, I've got to get in his presence. I've got to spend time in prayer. I want to open this right now or give you an opportunity to come forward. Sorry, I'm old school. They say open. Most people are like, I didn't know they were closed. I'm going to give you this moment right now to make a public confession to Jesus. God, I want you. 
I want you, I want you, I want you. Come on, let's move. Let's move, let's move. Let's just spend some, a moment in prayer. Let tonight be, or this morning be a time of lighting a fuse for better things and a closer walk with him. God, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. God, touch your people. God, touch your people. God, touch your people. Do what only you can do. God, do what only you can do. Touch their lives, God. God, touch their lives. God, let your anointing, Heavenly Father, rest upon them. God, I pray you would change the desires of our hearts. God, that we no longer be satisfied, God. God, but we want to see your fire move. God, we want your direction in every area of our life. God, we want to see our kids spend eternity in heaven. God, we want to see a generation set free from drugs, from gangs, from violence, from prison, Heavenly Father. God, we want to see you move in every corner of this great nation. God, turn our hearts back to you. God, turn our hearts back to you. Oh, God, we love you. We love you. We love you, God. We thank you for who you are, Lord. Yes, Lord Jesus. Can I pray for your people? God, I pray for every family, for every person in here. God, I pray for supernatural signs and wonders to manifest in their day-to-day -day life. God, in their dreams, in their marriages, over their kids, Heavenly Father. God, I pray, God, that we would not be satisfied with the religion. God, but we will be hungry for a move of you. God, for your presence, for your purpose, and for your power. God, we love you and we thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen, amen. Hey, if this sermon blessed you and your family, I want to encourage you to be a truth partner. You can do that by simply going to creativechurch.com slash give and partnering with us to help get this message of truth out to more people in our nation and around the world. It is our truth partners that make this a reality. Again, thank you for subscribing to our channel. Thank you for liking today's video. We'll see you back here on the channel real soon.